Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Mike forgot to read the scripture he told me, so we will read it for you before we get going. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 6. And as I read these words uh, this morning, uh, you'll notice this is not your normal uh, passage of scripture that we probably normally would look at. It's, uh, it's not, uh, I'm going to give you a warning, all right? This is your warning. This is not your normal sermon. Uh, this is going to be an abnormal sermon at best, all right? It's, uh, it's not, uh, it, we're not looking at some of the things we normally would look at going through scripture, but it's in scripture. And we're going to look at what God has for us here today. It's very pertinent for our times, uh, and yet uh, it's a hard section of Scripture, one the angels fear to tread on. Uh, we would uh, ignore it if we wanted to, or if we, were, if we wanted to just ignore God's Word, but we don't, don't want to do that. This is what God has for us, and we're going to look at it today as we do. And if you, are, uh, if you decide this is not a sermon you wanted to hear, just think you could be out skiing with our young people. And... Uh, breaking legs and so forth, so it's better than that, right? So I hope uh, some of you are going to be absolutely bored. Some of you are going to fall asleep. Some of you are going to say, what in the world is he doing? Some of you are going to say, this is wonderful. So I'm going to like the last group best, but uh, (laughs) I trust that God's word will speak to us in a very, very difficult section of scripture. Let me read it to you, verse 2. Let me start with verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions which I delivered them to you, as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and a man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as a woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off of her head, or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Pray with me, would you? Our fathers, we come to this very difficult passage of Scripture. Uh, We want to recognize, first of all, you put it in your word for a purpose, and we want to honor that purpose. Also, Father, today as we come into the scriptures here. We want to be clear. We want to be gracious. We want to be expounding what you have here for us and no more and no less. And Lord, I pray you give us uh, receptive hearts to hear your word. It might challenge some of our thinking. It might simply reinforce others. I pray that they will all go away encouraged in Christ and the great plan that you have for us in all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, until relatively recent years, uh, the role of men and women in the home and in the church, and we're working mainly at the church today, uh, was pretty much a settled issue in conservative circles. Uh, When I was growing up, there were very few people that would question a passage like this or question the traditional view uh, that uh, we will expound upon a little later today. Uh, The church had known uh, from its beginning that women, for example, I had wonderful opportunities, many ministries and roles in the local church, uh, and they were, they were essential to the body of Christ in so very many, many ways. And yet the scriptures made it clear that when it came to the church, uh, women were not to teach doctrine to men, nor to be in, in the positions of authority over, over the church. 
And that was the traditional view. That's the view that's been held for 2,000 years. It's the view that the church has held for the conservative church throughout all that time. But the things have been changing. We no longer live in Mayberry, if we ever did. Uh, and the society has changed. Our, society, our churches usually are in lockstep, not too awful far behind where, where the culture is itself. So the question is not whether a change is good, is, uh, is good or interesting or whatever. The question is, is it biblical? And so when we have new views coming up and challenges to what we thought over, over the years, we have to look at what God's Word says and to examine it in light of that. And by the way, our society has almost always been wrong about almost everything, by the way, uh, but often uh, about the roles of men and women in, in our society and, and in the church. Uh, we, uh, we, we find, for example, this pendulum always swinging back and forth. Uh, there was a time in the Western world where women were considered little more than property. And then uh, at another time, they were kind of empty-headed decorations. And at other times, they, they are objects of lust. And that's pretty much been true ever since the beginning of the fall of man. And that is, that's one of the awful things, but that's where, where it is. But the, the, the fad right now, the newer, newer fad, is that there are no differences between men and women at all. Uh, that the, the, the gender issues are confusing to people. People are being told that there are no differences. And anybody that uh, says otherwise is transphobic or homophobic or whatever, you're phobic with something and that uh, you need to get over it because there really is no difference between men and women. And there's really no difference in gender when it comes to that. So in the midst of all that, it's a great comfort for us to know that there is an anchor that we can turn to that, doesn't, that allows us to not drift with all the fads, that allows us not to be rolled over by the waves of doctrines and the philosophies that roll in on us all the time, that we have an anchor. That anchor is found in the Word of God. God's Word is immutable. It never changes. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. It's handed down through the apostles and the writers of Scripture to us. And our job is not to second-guess God. Our job is not to try to come up with a plan better than his. Our task is much more simple and much more beautiful. It's to understand the Word of God and live it. And that is where we are in our passage today. And by the way, not only does God's views not change with the fads, and by the way, Twitter doesn't run the world. Uh, aren't you glad that the Twitterverse is not where we turn to for truth, where we turn to for life, where we turn to for anything? Uh, in the Twitter universe, there are some good things, but mostly a bunch of junk. Think about it. Think who's writing these Twitters, people with nothing else to do. You know? uh, why are you listening to these people? I hope you're not. You know, I, I would encourage you to turn it off, period. And, uh, spend a, and for every minute you spend in Twitter, if you're one of those Twitter people that are Facebook people, you spend one minute in the Word of God. If you did that, you won't go too far astray. But as we think about it in that light, uh, I want to say one more thing about God here. God is God. Isn't that amazing? I get paid big bucks to say things like that. You know? God is God. And God is not beholden to us. And God doesn't apologize to us. And God doesn't answer to us. And we are not, got what God wants to do, how God designs his universe, how God wants us to function, is something he does not have to explain to us. He is God. Our job is not to second guess him, but to obey him. So as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning, 
uh, Paul is looking at these issues concerning uh, roles and responsibilities within the church in particular. There's some problems going on here. He wants to address them. And he's going to start off with, in verse 2 by looking at uh, the scriptural role of men and women. He, he alludes to it. He doesn't actually talk about it. We're going to look at other verses to uh, talk about it. And then, uh, then he goes to a particular problem that this church needed to be addressed and corrected concerning. So verse 2, it says this, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as it was delivered, I, I delivered them to you. Now remember this book, we've been going through this book for months now and we've looked at problem after problem after problem, haven't we? This church has just had all sorts of sins and shortcomings and issues and Paul's been addressing them one after the other and he's going to continue to do that after this verse. He takes a pause here to praise them for one thing that he can praise them for. Then he picks back up in verse 3 and going through verse 16 he's going to deal with an issue concerning uh, the roles of men and women in the church, disorder in the church. And then in chapter 11, 17 to 34, he's going to talk about the disorder concerning the Lord's Supper of all things. And then in chapters 12 to 14, he's going to talk about concerns and disorder related to uh, spiritual gifts. And so he's got a lot on his plate in front of him. But before he gets there, he pauses long enough to go to this verse here. I say, I praise you for something. I praise you that you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. And we're not used to that word traditions when it comes to the Christian faith, and so it bothers us. When we think of traditions, we usually think of Christmas or Thanksgiving or those types of things. But when the, when the New Testament uses the word tradition, it uses it in one of two ways. As it's being used here, it's often simply a reference to the, the teachings of the scriptures given to us by the apostles. We find that in other passages like 2 Thessalonians 2.15 and 3.6 where, where these traditions are the things handed down from the Holy Spirit to the apostles, to others who handed them down to us. And these are the traditions, are the teachings, are the doctrines of, of, of God. And the word tradition is being used that way right here. The other way the word tradition is used as, is to traditions of people that actually uh, challenge the, the teachings of the Word of God. And we find that in numerous places. Colossians 2.8 tells us to, to be careful with the traditions of men that are leading you astray. Jesus talked about it himself in Matthew 15. He said to the Pharisees, you're invalidating the Word of God by your traditions. And so he's using tradition there as, as ideas, philosophies, doctrines, convictions that, that supersede the Word of God, that overwhelm and dominate the Word of God itself. And he says, he warns us about those. But now he's using it in this particular context to talk about the biblical teachings, the biblical principles found in the Word of God concerning certain issues. Now, in this case... His issue, his context, has to do with the role of men, men and women in the local assembly. That's primarily what he's talking about. He alludes to them, and then he says, I'm so happy that you are clinging to those. Remember, this church, with all of its problems, had one positive thing going on. Their doctrines seemed to be in order. Uh, they, they did not have many doctrinal problems. The only large doctrinal issue we know of in this church concerns the resurrection of Christ and resurrection of the believer and Paul ex examines that carefully in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Everything else they seem to have pretty much in order. So when we turn to this passage here, he's talking about traditions or principles or teachings in relationship to his context of the role of men and women uh, in the church and in the home. So we're going to go to other places. I want you to go to, to Galatians 3.28. What traditions had he taught them already? What were the traditions that he had taught them? Now, we can line them up in two different categories. Number one, he had taught them that all men and all women in Christ are equal. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This marvelous verse that I'll come back to in a moment to explain in its context is at the very epicenter of a great storm of debate within evangelical Christianity today and has been going on for a number of years now. Some very loudly proclaim that this verse obliterates all role distinctions. And there are no role distinctions any longer between men and women. There are no, there are no functions within the church or within the home that, that are distinct between men and women based upon this verse largely alone. And any hierarchy structure, especially if men are at the top, is there only because it's a power play. Only because uh, men want to, to oppress women and take advantage of women and, and keep women in their place. And that's the way it's being explained by an awful lot of those who claim to be evangelicals today. Uh, this project, uh, prospect that has gathered a lot of momentum in recent times, but that was not true just a few decades ago. So I'm going to take you back into history for a little bit. Recent history, the 1960s, where so many false things seems to have drawn from, the well, from the baby boomers as we call them today, my generation. In, in, the, in the late 60s, the progressive rev, uh, movement, this revisionist movement concerning men and women, uh, began to, to move forward. But, but to, I want you to note this, there was no new biblical scholarship that caused a change in views. Nothing was new was found. There's no ancient text found in a cave somewhere that, that said something different. No new epistles, no new, no, nothing along that line. It's simply society was starting to change and the church started to follow along. And that took place in the late 19, uh, 1960s. By the 1970s and the 80s, the forces began in earnest to assault the traditional view of, that, we, that I pointed out a while ago about men and women in the church. For example, and I'm going to give you some examples here. At the Women in Ministries of Christ conference in 1978, sponsored by the Evangelical Women's Caucus and Fuller Seminary, it was declared that biblical feminism had, had come of age by one of the leading feminist professors there at the Fuller Seminary. Two women in particular stood up during that period of time and became the darlings of the feminist movement in Christianity. There was Virginia Mullencott, who said, Christian feminists seek liberty and freedom and autonomous power in order to serve each other out of reverence to Christ. Autonomous power. They wanted no one over them in authority. Uh, Lethia Scanzoni also was her friend, 
And she said this in an article in Christianity Today, today in 1978. said, we acknowledge that we have encouraged men to, pridefully, to prideful domination and women to irresponsible passivity. We call both men and women to mutual submission and active discipleship. Mutual submission. Now that term is very, very common in evangelicalism today. It's common in a lot of marriage conferences. We'll look at a verse in a moment. But mutual submission would be the term upon, around which all this would, would, be, would circle. And it became very common in evangelicalism. In 1981 in Christianity Today, an evangelical free church pastor, Alston Stauffer, wrote these words. He said, based on Galatians 3.28, all dominant and submissive categories have been nullified by our being baptized into Christ. There are, no, there are no leadership roles, there are no submissive roles in the church. In the 1970s, the mid-1970s, Willow Creek Church began. And as it began uh, and, and moved and became large, it had one person who was re the recognized theologian, Gilbert Berzikian. Gilbert Berzikian wrote at least two books on this subject based wrapped around Galatians 3.28 in which he said that there are no difference between men and women, and women have every right to be pastors, preachers, leaders, elders, and, and co-leaders in their homes as, as men do. His books became very popular, and Willow Creek was built around that, that thesis. Built in the DNA of Willow Creek is that women are allowed to be at the same level as far as leadership as, all, as men. And that's become part of their movement. As the Willow Creek expanded, as it became a network, as it began to influence, as the flagship of the seeker-sensitive movement, as it began to influence all of Christianity, and through that, that, their efforts and the efforts of others revolutionized in a negative way the evangelical church in America. As that happened, this uh, influence of Gilbert Brzezikian and his views about Galatians 3.28 has permeated evangelicalism throughout. Now I want to fast forward to recent times. What has happened in recent years? At the end of the 20th century, a poll said 65% of middle-of-the-road evangelical clergymen, evangelical clergymen, favored the ordination of women. Now that percentage is probably about the same in the more conservative wings of evangelicalism. For example, Bill Hybels from Willow Creek stepped down a couple of years ago because of moral failure. And when he stepped down, he was replaced by a woman as the pastor of Willow Creek movement. He, she didn't last long, but she was there for a while. That, it fit their, their philosophy, their theology, that women have, have the same roles in the church as men. More concerning recently is, is Rick Warren's church, who is the, probably the second leading uh, attractional church uh, or seeker-sensitive church of the past, he, he settled back. In, in May, Mother's Day of last year, his church, which is part of the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the largest churches in America, ordained three women to Christian ministry. And that is, although I wouldn't call them extremely conservative, nevertheless, we're seeing that as a Southern Baptist church at this time. In the late 1970s, Virginia Mullencott cried for freedom for women. Twenty years later, she boldly declared that Paul contradicted himself in the scriptures on his teaching when it came to women. Contradiction from the inspired the Apostle Paul.
In the 1970s, Mullencott and Scassoni were the darlings of the Christian rights, of women's rights in the church. Today, they are the darlings of homosexual rights in the church, using the same exact interpretation of Galatians 3.28. They now consider themselves evangelical homosexuals, which, by the way, if you don't know it, is a thing today, how quickly things change when you misunderstand Scripture. Now, having said all that, look at Galatians 3.28. We're not going to ex 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 exegete that in any great detail. Just glance at the, de at the context. What is the context? The context, and by the way, this is one of the, the, the important hermeneutical principles. Always read your Bible in context. What is the subject that Paul is addressing in Galatians 3? It is not gender roles. It is not how the church functions in that regard. It is about who we are in Jesus Christ. And he says here, in Christ, you come to Christ not as a man or a woman, you come to Christ as a person. And you, when you come to Christ, we're all equal in Christ. And so there are no Jews or Greeks, there's no slaves or, or free, there are no male or female, we're all one in Christ. That's a, that's a positional issue concerning our relationship with Jesus Christ. There are no inequalities there. But having said that, if you look at those verses, notice that uh, it does not eliminate roles in society. Even as Paul was writing these words, there were still, and still are, Jews and Greeks, right? There are still slaves and free people, right? There are still men and women, although some are trying to tell us they're not. I, I don't know how delusional we can get, but uh, how do you know you're a woman today? Or you don't unless you just feel like it. That's not what the Bible, of course, teaches. There are gender roles. And so he wasn't eliminating roles. He was saying, in Christ, we're all one. And that's what it's all about. And when it's ripped out of context and misapplied, horrible things happen, as I've just demonstrated. Now go to Ephesians chapter 5. What, else, what other traditions had Paul taught uh, these Christians at Corinth? Ephesians 5, verse 22 He had taught them what scripture taught about concerning the role of men and women in, in the home. And so we'll just briefly look at this, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So we have this tradition, this principle, this teaching of God's word that the husband is to be the, uh, give the leadership in his home and the wives is to follow that leadership in the home. Pretty simple, isn't it? Uh, today we hear mutual submission based on verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. And then, then it says, well, husbands should be submissive to their wives and wives should be submissive to their husbands. But Paul doesn't say that. He immediately moves on to explain what he means by that and showing the submissive and authoritarian roles within uh, the church throughout. I, I cannot stress enough, and I want, as I move on for this, we don't have time for this, but I cannot stress enough how devastating it is for Christian homes who ignore the simple teachings of Ephesians 5, where the husband does not step up to lead and a wife does not 
receive that leadership in a proper way. Multitudes, myriads upon myriads of problems, unnecessary problems are brought about because of ignoring God's simple truth. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, one more principle or one more tradition Paul would have taught these people. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 11, because he's talking mainly about the church and in the context of the church, Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 11, he says this, but a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, for I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now remember, it's in the context of the local church, and he's saying here very clearly that, the, that men, men are to give leadership in the church, men are to teach the doctrines and scriptures to the church, women, that is not the role, the function of the women. Pretty simple stuff here, although we could look at great details here. Now that was clear to almost everybody until recent times. In 1981, uh, the same author in the same article, Alston Stauffer, said this. I want you to listen to this. 1981. He says this, and I quote, It is clear that Paul was not the first to tell women to submit to men. Jewish women have been taught submission for centuries. Paul now listen, Paul, ever careful not to upset the delicate cultural fabric of his day, encouraged women to continue to submit. You see what he's saying? Paul was accommodating his society. He was not teaching the eternal principles of God's word. He was simply giving in to the culture so he wouldn't upset people. Does that sound like Paul to you? Does that sound like God to you? But that is what he said. On the other side, showing you the, the, the opposite here, is Kevin DeYoung, who would take the same position we would take. Kevin DeYoung is a, is a leader, a Christian leader today that is conservative, and he wrote something recently in a book I, I, I've just read on male and female roles. And I want to read this to you, and I want you to put yourself in the shoes of an unbeliever hearing this. I, I, I want you to think about if somebody goes out this afternoon and puts this on Facebook or Twitter or puts it in, in the editorial section of the newspaper tomorrow, what do you think would be the response to these words that are 100% biblical? Listen up. Kevin DeYoung writes this. It may sound archaic, if not fundamentally sinister, but God's design for the home is, wait for it, a thoughtful, intelligent, gentle, submissive wife, and a loving, godly, self-sacrificing, leading husband. I bet you put that out there today, you get a lot of response. <laughs> but it's biblical. It is so out of step with our society that people can hardly handle it. And yet it's the eternal teaching of God's word. In response to that, Beth Allison Barr, a leading evangelical feminist, in her most recent book that is making huge waves called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. She said the, that interpretation that I just read to you from the young and people like, like him, that interpretation is a corrupt interpretation derived from our sinful human drive to dominate others and to build hierarchies of power and oppression. Here it is. It is a result of sin, white supremacy, of course, and racism, not biblical. It's, it's 
racism, it's white supremacy, it's, it's coming from our sinful nature, and yet found in the Word of God. She writes his massive book as a Southern Baptist professor at Baylor University uh, about history, that she claims history shows that every interpretation we've ever had of the, of the New Testament is wrong. If you want to read my critique of her history, uh, it's, on the, it's on our website, and she, if she's the worst historian I've ever seen. But nevertheless, she has got great kudos among many people. She calls these texts we look at today, she calls them texts of terror because they terrify women, she says. In ancient Corinth, while the Christians do these teachings, some began to carry their freedom to extreme. If not in word, at least in deed. They ignored what Paul was teaching in the traditions. They ignored the roles and responsibilities they had and went off and began to do their own things. So the issue is this, folks. Was Paul merely accommodating his culture or was he teaching eternal biblical principles? Paul says, I'm teaching eternal biblical principles that never change with time or culture or society. And said, I'm going to give you four arguments to, to build up and support my position. Four arguments that there are distinct roles for men and women. And we're going to look at, for the rest of our time, at the first argument today. And that is the argument based upon God's design. So I want you to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Theologian Owen Strand, who's going to be our, our men's conference speaker next year, not this year, says this in, in his book, Reenchanting Humanity. He says, here is the most controversial statement in our world today. Here it is. The most controversial statement in the world today. There are men and there are women. And I think he's right. And so we go back to our passage and we read verse 3, which is the key passage to this whole context. And he says this, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Uh, that, uh, I don't think if I stayed up all night I could find a more controversial verse to read to you this morning. Uh, it, it certainly doesn't fit our world system. It doesn't fit many Christians' worldview as well. It, it makes a lot of people angry, and yet it's in the Word of God. It's pretty clear what it says, but what in the world does it mean? <laughs> There's our hard part. So let's try to pick it apart for a little bit. First, we have to recognize that Paul is not speaking of quality or essence. He's speaking of function and authority. So look at the verse. It says at the end that God is the head of Christ. Is the Father superior to the Son? No, not at all. The Father and Son are one in essence, one in all things. Within the Godhead, there are not two, two or three different wills floating around where the, where the Son comes up with an idea, floats it by the Father, and the Father shoots it down, and the Son submits. That happens in the world among people. That doesn't happen in the Godhead. There is one God and one will, and there's no superiority. 
And so it's very important to note the actual words here. He doesn't say at the end of that verse that God is the head of the Son. He says God is the head of Christ or the Messiah. That is the name given to Christ in his incarnation. When Christ was on earth, he submitted to the will of the Father. Remember he said in the garden, not my will but yours be done. He submitted to the will of the Father. And so in that incarnational context, uh, Christ submitted to the Father, but not in his essence, not in his eternality, not within the Trinity. Heavy stuff. And again, I've written three articles on that. You can find those somewhere too, out in the foyer actually. Uh, this is hard stuff, but get it down. There are not three different gods with three different wills. There's one God, one will. There's not submission within the Trinity eternally, but while Christ was on earth, there was. That's all he's talking about here. Now go back and look at the, at the rest of it here. He says then, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman. God is the head of Christ. So what he's saying here then is this, that, that the Lord has designed his church and his structure in such a way that there is a leadership structure. And he has placed men over women in that structure within the church and within the home. That's the tradition. That's the principle. That's the biblical teaching. That is what people are rejecting for the most part in our world today. Now why do, we, why do people do that? Why do they reject this? But why, why do people who claim to be Christian leaders reject that? Let me give you one example. Many women today, many Christian leader women... Say, if, I can't, if I'm not allowed to do everything a man can do, then, uh, then I cannot fulfill my calling. I cannot be what God has called me and gifted me to be. On Mother's Day of last year, Anne Graham Lotz, the, grand, the granddaughter, or the daughter of Billy Graham, spoke at the Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. They claim at the Second Baptist Church, the Southern Baptist Church, that they have 83,000 members. There's only 22,000 that are alive, but they have 83,000 members. But it's a big church. And when it was questioned as to why she was preaching at this church on a Sunday morning, she said, if people get all weirded out by the fact that I'm a woman in the pulpit when men are in the audience, I just respect them, but I dis agree to disagree, and I just have to follow the Lord and what he's called me to do. So she said, I'm going to preach to men because God has called me to do that, although the Word of God has told her not to do that. So has God now changed his mind? Is God contradicting himself? Is God calling her to do something he has forbidden in his Word? I don't think so. And that's what happens when we place our own views and ideas above the Word of God itself. So how do people get around this theologically? So go back to our verse 3. I told you this wasn't a normal sermon. All right. I hope you, hope you got see that now, right? I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Okay, let's start there. How do you get around what seems to be very obvious? And the man is the head of, of a woman. How do you get around that? Well, first of all, let me say this. He's not talking about every woman be in, being in submission to every man. In the, in the rest of Scripture, when we pull it together, we're talking about in the home, the wife is to submit to her husband who God has called to lead. In the church, 
The, the women are to submit to the leadership of the church and, and the elders and not teach theology to men. So make sure you understand that. So how do you get around the work that this whole issue? You change the definition of head. Remember that great theologian, Indigo Montego in The Prince's Bride? He said, you keep using that word, I do not think you, it means what you think it means. And so modern theologians, many of them have come along and said, you have misunderstood the meaning of the word head for 2,000 years. Let me tell you what it really means. It doesn't mean authority, it doesn't mean leadership, it means source. And though that's the word that's being used today. This is, so we're saying here that Christ is the, is the source of every man, man is the source of a woman, and God is the source of Christ. Now even on the surface, that doesn't play out very well, does it? In what sense is God the source of Christ? Unless he created Christ, uh, he is not the source of Christ. And so that doesn't work well at all. And, what, and, at the, and when it says Christ is the head of every man, is he only the source of men but not of women? So even, even in that context, it doesn't fit at all. On top of that, every major lexicon, every major word study book in the Greek agrees that this word simply means leadership or authority. William Mousy, who is one of the great leading Greek scholars of the day, says it means chief, such as a capital city. The word is found 76 times in the New Testament and translated every time as head, never as source. In Colossians 1.18 and 2.10, it says that Christ is the head of the church. It's very clearly what it's speaking of. So when Paul is saying in, verse, in chapter 11, it, what she is saying is this, the wife must honor her husband as the man honors Christ who honors God. Now verse 3 is the principle. Verse 4 is where it gets very interesting. Okay, so you got the principle down? According to the New Testament scriptures, God has so designed his church and the home that he has, that he has called for men to give leadership, biblical leadership, spiritual leadership in the home. He is to do so as Christ loves the church. That's his model. Wives are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord unless he calls on her to do something un that's sinful or unbiblical. That's the biblical model. That's the teaching of scripture. In the church, women are allowed to do virtually anything in the church except be elders and pastors and teach theology to men. Everything else is wide open. That's the principle. Then he moves on, having said those, those principles, he now moves on to a particular problem in the church. And he says this in verse 4, he says, Every man has, who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Now this is interesting. Uh, the word itself doesn't mean on your head, it means hanging down from the head. So he's not talking about something on the head, but something hanging down from the head. I think the best understanding of that is hair. He's talking here about hair. Again, I want, to, I want to go back to the principle. The principle here in this verse and verses 5 and 6 is this. The Christian must not follow the dictates and the direction of the world. The Christian must be distinct from the world. The Christian must demonstrate the, the righteousness of Christ to the world in their words 
and in their deeds and in their life. And that's the principle. And we must not muddy that up with the way we dress, the way we behave in, with one another in the church. We must not allow that to happen. And when he comes to this particular issue, what is he talking about? And somebody has written this, a lot of trees have died debating this subject. This is a, we don't have enough details in scripture to know exactly what's going on. We don't have enough understanding of the culture to know exactly what's going on. And so we're scratching our head a little bit to understand what is really going on. We do know this, long hair on men was considered a sign of homosexuality in the first century in the Roman culture. Paul did not want Christian men to have the appearance of a homosexual and the homosexual men often were associated with the temple prostitution system as well. In verses 5 and 6 he moves on to the women. Doesn't get any easier. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if the woman does not cover her head let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off of her head or her head shaved let her cover her head. What is he talking about here? Again, the point is clear. Get the principle down. The point is clear. Women, Christian women should not look like, act like the unbelievers around them. They, there needs to be a distinction, and especially so in the church. Gender roles must not be blurred in the church. God has given us very distinct clear clarity of those gender roles. There's our principle. Now what is he talking about here concerning what the, the, the covering of women? There are, there are some there are three different views that have been given. I, I don't know which one's right. I know one's not, not, one's not right. It, it, some places, he's talking about wearing a hat when you're worshiping. Folks, people didn't wear hats back in those days. Neither men or women. And so it, it's not a hat. Some say it's a veil. And Eastern women at that time often wore veils to, to, as a form of modesty and subjection, and many do in, ancient, in the Eastern world today. But veil is not found here. The word for veil is only found in verse 15, which gives us a clue as what he's talking about. Verse 15 says this, But if a woman has long hair, it is, is a glory for, to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering or veil. That's where the word veil comes in. Verse 15 then I think gives us the answer to what he's talking about. He's talking about hair. The hair of the woman is given to her as a covering. Why would he say that? Why does it matter? Again, we're at a loss for the culture, but there are three, there are three real possibilities. First of all, in that time, if a woman was caught in adultery in the Roman world, they often had their hair shaved off as a sign of shame for committing adultery. So they had no hair. Also, the temple prostitutes often shaved their hair to be bald. And that was another option. The, th the third is that they wanted to look like a man. So here, here are the three possibilities. I don't know which one necessarily is right, or if any of them, because you don't know exactly what the cultural issue is after. We know the principle. And Gordon Fee, an excellent commentator on 1 Corinthians, said this, Even if we were sure of prevailing customs, we would need to be able to distinguish between Greek and Roman Jewish customs, as well as differences in geography, 
how one dressed at home, outside the home, in worship, differences between the rich and the poor. Bottom line, we do not know the exact details here. But what we do know and what is very clear is God wants men to worship him like men and women to worship him like women. He does not want the gender confusion that we are facing in our world today. And whatever problems were at Corinth, there was ultimately a breakdown in these distinctions. And there was chaos at the church as a result of that. And the Lord is giving distinct roles in the church here. That's the traditions that he taught. I have a whole lot more to say that you don't want to hear. So I'm going to go to one more thought. I want you to go to uh, Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. Galatians 1 verse 4. In every generation, in every society, in every culture, the church functions, you function as a Christian, within a dark, crooked, God-rejecting culture. Some of the particular challenges that we face today, they didn't face. The challenges sometimes differ, but the issues remain the same. And we live as lights in a dark, God-rejecting culture. There are four very powerful verses of Scripture in the New Testament that say this clearly. I'm going to give you those three others. I want, you should write them down and look at them. They are essential, absolutely essential, to understanding our role in the, church to, in the world today as Christians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 says that we are to live as blamelessly, blameless and as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4 said that we have, because of Christ, we have escaped the corruption that is in this world. We're escapees. In Philippians, we're blameless and we're lights. In Second in Peter 1, 1 4, we are escapees from this corrupt world. Acts chapter 2 verse 40 in Peter's first sermon, he, he gives his invitation by saying, calling the unbelievers to be saved from this perverse or crooked generation. So we're called to be blameless, to be lights, to recognize we have been rescued, to be saved from this perverse generation. Then Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, he says this, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. God sent Christ to rescue us from this present evil age. The, uh, the rhetoric for about 60 years now among much of evangelicalism is that we must engage the culture and change the culture. How well are we doing with that? The culture is seldom changed very much by the church. The biblical teaching is we're called out of these things. We stand distinct from these things in our theology, our lives, our worship. And we shine as lights in a dark place that the world might see what Jesus Christ can do with one who follows him. And when we miss that, the church goes downhill. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher from, from Britain from some years ago, said this, I have no hesitation 
in asserting that what is lo was largely responsible for emptying the churches in Great Britain, and by the way, they're empty, was that the social gospel preaching, when you depart from the primary task of the church and do something else, though your motive may be pure and excellent, that is the result. In other words, the Lord has called us to a task, folks. We are to shine as lights in this world. We are to, to preach the gospel that rescues people from sin. And we're to, we're to demonstrate Jesus Christ. When we try to change culture through our, our efforts on a direct way, we don't accomplish anything. And we, instead, we compromise the truth. Our lives need to be distinct. We don't follow the world. We don't follow Twitter. We don't follow the radio programs or whatever. We follow the scriptures. And we live distinct lives that honor, glorify Jesus Christ in every way. That's the main message that Paul was giving the Corinthians. Father, we pause before you, having gone through this most difficult of passages, knowing that there are still questions in the minds of most of us concerning those things. Lord, but, but nevertheless, we see the clear teaching that's here. Help us, Father, to, to stand uh, out as lights in this world, as blameless. Let us uh, preach a gospel that is clear, of, uh, that rescues people from sin. Lord, may we stand in you and trust in you and not muddy the waters with the, by buying into the cultural ideas around us. We pray in Jesus' name.